Welcome to the One Crossing Podcast. Here you can find past sermons along with other exclusive content. Our prayer is that God will move in your life even when you are on the go. We hope you enjoy this message. This isn't going to come as a surprise to you, but men and women see things differently. I mean, chemically, legitimately, biologically, men and women see things differently. I give, you know, my wife a hard time from stage. I'm going to, she's going to be vindicated at one point in time. Trust me. But uh, like women, uh, they see the whole spectrum of color. Uh, Guys, we only see the rainbow. That's it. There's blue, there's green. I think that's it. I don't know how many colors I even know. And my wife knows what ecru is. And I'm like, man, cool, man. Like if your wife sends you to the paint store, guys, and she says, pick up a color, and you walk in there and you're like, I'm looking for, I'm looking for white. And then they give you the little, um, like the divorce wheel. <laughs> and you're like, you call your wife back and be like, there's more than one white. And she knows. And you're looking at them like, I don't even, I don't see the difference. Women, uh, they have, the, they have uh, more peripheral vision than guys do. That's why men, when you're driving, your wife's like, watch out! And you're like, what? You didn't see it. The fact that you almost got in a wreck, it's because you can't see stuff. You see things more uh, down the road. Oh, for instance, um, when you are, uh, here's a fight that Jennifer and I have. She will ask me to uh, go get something. Advil, Tylenol, toothpaste, whatever it is in our house. Or she'll ask me to get something out of the fridge. And I'll go, sure. I get up, I'm super helpful. And then I will say back to her, we don't have any. It's because I can't find it. It's just how we work. And my wife, like she can open up a refrigerator and see all of the contents organized simultaneously because like her peripheral vision just picks it all up. She does a quick survey of everything in the fridge and is just making her list. Have you ever asked a guy to get something out of the fridge? We get down like we're an umpire, like we're about ready to call balls and strikes. And then we go from one thing to the next. That's why ladies, when you send your husband to grocery shop, he asks the person there for help because he can be in the aisle where it's nothing but bread and turn around and ask the lady, do, do you know which aisle the bread's in? She'll be like, it's, uh, it's right behind you. Ladies, if you want to hide something from your husbands, you just put it right in front of him. He'll never, he'll never see it. There was actually a study that was done in England uh, a couple years back and they had uh, couples go into an apartment that they had never been in before. And part of the deal was they had to make a meal. And then once the meal was prepared, they sat down at this table in a house that they'd never been in before. And they, then they instructed the wives through an earpiece to ask their husband to go get the butter. Now in every single one of these 50 couples, they had placed the butter on the middle of the second shelf with nothing else around it. 48 of the men came back to the table and said, there isn't any. We see things differently. However, when it comes to the topic for today, I believe that many of us don't see nearly as much as we need to. 
Our eyes are completely adapted to see the physical, but poorly adapted to see the spiritual. I wanna welcome all of you joining from all of our different locations. I wanna welcome those of you who are watching online. I hope you guys who are part of our online family are doing okay. Again, if you guys need anything, make sure you reach out to your campus and they will do their best to try and help you out. I know some of our campuses are delivering groceries when people are in need. We are still here for you. We are still in this with you and we're just thankful for you. And to those of you who are part of our online family, we're thankful for you as well. Today, we're gonna talk about the supernatural. We're gonna talk about angels and demons and the Satan. And I know that that sounds weird, the Satan, but we're gonna to get to that a little bit later. As a culture, we are fascinated with the supernatural. How many of you at all of our locations, raise your hands, you've watched, you enjoyed watching Superman? Keep your hands up if you liked X-Men, Harry Potter, The Avengers, put your hands down. Twilight, don't raise them. I'm just messing with you, that's totally fine. I watched them, it was good. Uh, you grew up watching the supernatural X-Files or my family, we grew up watching Touched by an Angel. Yeah, that was legit. That's where, that was, you know, that was when America was America. Um, it was, yeah, that was, it was a fun time. Um, but what's, what do we really believe about the supernatural? I, uh, this week I put a poll out on social media, on Twitter and on uh, Instagram and Facebook. And because I was getting a little nervous, like I'm gonna preach on something and I'd like to at least know like where I'm starting with my people, like how far off are we? And like 95% of you believe in angels and like 80% of you believe in demons, which is weird. Uh, but hopefully at the end of this message, we'll be able to solve that. So what does the Bible have to say about the supernatural? Now, in order for us to get into this, we need ground rules. And, um, and so I'm asking for a legitimate favor from you because I get nervous talking about this and I just, I need us to know that like uh, we can all, um, I just need you to listen to these ground rules. I'm gonna be spending a lot of time uh, reading my notes and that's because I wanna say things really, really well and I, um, there's a lot of things that I, that, that I wanna make sure I'm clear on and not unclear. So for those of your locations, if you are not getting the eye contact that you deserve, it is because I love you enough to make sure that I clearly articulate my viewpoints. And at the end of this sermon, you might go, uh, I'm still confused and I apologize for that in advance, okay? Uh, rule number one, while angels and demons are real, they are minor characters in God's story. And we do a disservice to God our faith and our witness when we elevate them beyond what scripture teaches. Secondly, this sermon is not a license for you to go out and become a vampire slayer, purchase your silver steaks and garlic. And I know, listen, I know that uh, people are predisposed to want to be able to touch something uh, powerful. And um, I, ju I just, I don't want you to be leave one of our locations and become a freak show. I mean that a lot. Thirdly, this is not a permission slip to call everything angelic or demonic. I don't want you to start painting every person and every problem as a demon possession that requires an exorcism. And that is what happens sometimes when people don't keep their thinking caps on. Finally, this sermon cannot go fully into detail about everything concerning the supernatural. 
There are a lot of theories surrounding angels and demons that prioritize certain scriptures over others. This sermon is designed to articulate the reality of the supernatural and highlight the issues that have universal acceptance throughout history and theologians. Uh, and I'm gonna walk through things that only I can clearly articulate biblically. It is designed more than anything to show you that there is more than what we see and how do we live in response to this reality. That being said, let's go. Do Christians believe in the supernatural? The answer is yes. We believe that there is a spiritual reality that has divine and demonic characters. We believe that God sent his son Jesus to earth and that when we begin an intimate personal relationship with him, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are the three biggest players in the supernatural. And to believe in God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is to believe in divine beings that are outside of our world, that operate in non-human form. We also believe in angels and demons. Why? Well, because uh, Jesus talks about them, the apostles talk about them, and the Bible is full of references about them. To not believe in angels and demons is to believe that somehow after uh, the Bible was written that angels and demons just disappeared. That they somehow existed only in Jesus's day and in the life of his early followers and then somehow they all just disappeared. And that makes no sense to me. And I'm assuming that makes no sense to you. Over 100 times in the Old Testament, over 170 times in the New Testament, we come across talk about angels. Over 82 times in the New Testament, the word demons show up. Next one, kind of a lighthearted one that'll help inform your tattoos. Do angels have wings? No, they don't. Now, you can still get an angel tattoo because it'll help people understand that that's an angel because that's how we perceive angels as having wings. Uh, there's a lot of talk about winged creatures in heaven, but the winged creatures in heaven are divine uh, beings. They are not angels. So they were the divine beings were created by God, but they are not angels. Angels are different from the divine beings. And uh, whenever there is a description of the presence of God, he is surrounded by these divine creatures that have wings. And uh, different parts of the Bible that talk about it being like an ox or uh, a kind of a lion, or it'll talk about uh, a bull that has wings. And when the ark was created, or the, the covenant was created uh, with the Israelites in the Old Testament and they made the tabernacle, and then when the temple was constructed in Jerusalem in the most holy place, in the temple, it was adorned with these winged creatures. And the reason it was adorned with these winged creatures is because every time we get a picture of God on his throne room, he's surrounded by these winged creatures. And so what we put here on earth was designed to replicate what God was experiencing in his throne room. But those are not angels. Angels are different. And we think they need wings because Angels need to fly from heaven to earth, but they're not, they don't operate in physical form primarily. They can take physical form, but they operate primarily in a non-physical spiritual form. So they don't have to abide by the rules of earth. 
Hebrews chapter 13 gives us insight into this. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. There's two takeaways here. The one, the primary takeaway is that as Christians, we're supposed to show hospitality to people because of the love that God that has impacted our lives, we should show hospitality and love to other people and we should even do so to strangers. And in doing so, you may actually entertain an angel. Now, what's the second thing that this scripture teaches us? Angels don't have wings. Because I'm pretty sure if you entertained somebody at your house that had wings coming out of their back, you'd notice, right? They wouldn't need that verse in the Bible. Yeah, you probably didn't notice the guy with the huge wings. Yeah, I was mid-mac and cheese. And I was like, we got to talk about this because you, you keep dusting my curtains. We got to have a serious conversation, right? So they don't have wings. So what do angels do? They are first and foremost messengers from God to deliver a heavenly word to the people of earth. In fact, that is actually what the word angel means. It means messenger. Do you believe in angels is the same as saying, do you believe in messengers? Their job is to bring God's word to God's people in very specific times. We see this at the birth of Jesus when an angel appears to Mary and to the shepherds. We see it at Jesus's resurrection when they appear and tell the women that Jesus is alive. It's when Jesus, right before, the, after the ascension, angels appear and tell the disciples that Jesus will one day come back. They bring a divine message to prepare God's people to accomplish a divine purpose. So an angel is not gonna show up and tell you by Google. An angel is not gonna show up and say, you're gonna need an umbrella. An angel is gonna show up and it is gonna, if it's going to deliver a message to you, it will be a very specific message designed to help you accomplish a divine task. Now, 99.9999999999999% of the time, God's way of communicating to you and his people is through, we've already talked about this, through his word, through his spirit, and through his people. So you don't need to spend a whole lot of time going, God, what do you want me to do today? Where's my angel telling me he's already spoken to you? But like, you know, if you're a virgin and gonna give birth to like God's son, you might want an angelic heads up, okay? Big difference. The second thing that angels do is they minister to Jesus and to his people. This is very cool. If you look throughout scripture, how many times the angels showed up and ministered, they ministered a lot. They comforted Jesus in Gethsemane. They showed up and they uh, helped Jesus recover, recover after he had been tempted in the desert with Satan. They were the ones who showed up and released the apostles from prison in the book of Acts. They were the ones that led uh, Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch to present the gospel. They were the ones that comforted Paul by telling him that he and all of his companions would actually safely arrive in Rome. Angels show up to minister and help. Hebrews chapter one, verse 14 says this, are not all angels 
ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. There is a lot of speculation concerning this, like, do I have a personal angel assigned to me? And what does their help look like? Uh, Here's my answer, I don't know. I don't have a clear answer for you. Um, Here's what I do feel comfortable saying, that there is a strong chance that in a moment of extreme peril, extreme temptation, on the verge of a major sin or life-altering decision, in the middle of excruciating pain, loss, or hurt, that angels have ministered to you. That you may look back and go, I don't know how I got through that. And there's a chance that the reason you got through that was because God sent angels to minister to you. And while you may not have seen it and may, you may not have felt it, God very well could have sent people to just pull you through to be a spiritual support system in an unbelievably dark and unbearable hour. What about the Satan? And more importantly, why do you keep calling him the Satan instead of just calling him by his first name, Satan, and his last name, Lucifer? Uh, Well, here's why. In all of scripture, the Satan is never actually given a proper name. Not once. He is never given a proper name. He is always given either a title or an image. Uh, The images are that of a snake, a sea dragon, a dragon, a scorpion, or pretending to be an angel of light. His titles are the devil, which is a word for slander. If you read in 1st and 2nd Timothy, when Paul's writing to Timothy and saying, hey, uh, slanderers, he's saying, hey, don't be a devil. Those of you who do this, you're devils. It's an action, he's given them a title. This is what you do, you slander people. Uh, Satan is also uh, not a name. Satan, the word Satan means an opposer, one who stands against, an adversary. Everywhere in the uh, Hebrew Bible and in the Greek Bible, which is the words, the, the languages in which they are written, it always has the definitive article, the first. So it never, so while your English Bible, when you're reading it, and you understand why that because the, you're trying to make sure that when you read the Bible, it makes sense. If every time it said Satan, it said the Satan, you'd be like, this is just weird. But in the Greek and Hebrew, when it was really just done, it was always had the definitive article, the. In other words, they were saying the slanderer shows up. The accuser shows up. The word Lucifer, nowhere in scripture. It's not, it doesn't even happen there. What actually ended up happening is when they were translating in, into Latin, the Bible, they came across Isaiah 14, where Isaiah is talking about the fall of Satan and he's using imagery. Kind of like, let's say you were to say that there, uh, the sunset on your marriage, if you were talking about your divorce, that your marriage had a sunset. And so you're looking out to the sky and you're describing what happened in your marriage as what happened on earth. Isaiah is talking about Satan and refers to him as the morning star, which is the last star you see as the sun comes up. It's the star that hangs on as long as it can. He was actually looking at the planet Venus, which in Latin is Lucifer. And now you're going, oh, I've been calling Satan Venus forever. Kinda, yeah. So it's nowhere it shows up. Now, when Satan does show up in scripture, 
depending on how you translate the text, it almost appears as if Satan is given a compliment at the beginning of Genesis 3. When he shows up to have his conversation with Eve, it says that he was more crafty than all the other animals. But uh, the word is more uh, shrewd and smart. It's actually a cousin to the word wisdom. It wouldn't be far off to say, now the serpent was more wise than all the other creatures. So it starts off kind of tipping its hat to this snake that appears. This leads many people to believe, because you might be going, why did God allow Satan in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve that the fall of the human race coincided with the fall of the celestial beings or the angels? That what happened in the garden didn't just happen, that that was also when the Satan fell. And part of the reason why we believe this is because the snake begins by being smarter than all the beasts of the field. And at the end of the story, he is cursed more than all the beasts of the field. So that's who Satan is. Next question. So are demons real? This is the part of the message that gets a little weird. The answer is yes. The New Testament shows us frequent collisions with demonic forces. We're told that they know who Jesus is and we're told that demons believe in God. So what are demons? Demons are former angels. Angels actually have a lot in common with us. Angels like us were created by God, designed to serve him and bring him glory. Also like us, angels have free will, the ability to choose to follow God and the ability to rebel from God. Demons are angels that rejected God and chose to follow after the Satan. We get a picture of this in Revelation chapter 12. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough. This is the dragon. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Therefore, demons know who Jesus is, they believe that God is real, and they still choose to follow the Satan who himself is a fallen being. Demons have the ability and desire to bring pain to the world and separation from God. In scripture, these are the things that demons had the ability to do. They had the ability to, and this is where I said, I need you to not see absolutely everything as demonic oppression. So this is where I'm asking you to be the people I know you can be. In scripture, they had the ability to cause blindness, deafness, muteness, deformity, seizures, mental illness, and suicidal impulses. The worst thing you could do is go up and talk to a blind person and go, this person's demon possessed. There is, I I just, I need you to, but they have the ability to cause blindness. The Bible suggests to us that the best way to think about angels and demons is in military terms. They are organized into a hierarchy. They have ranks, 
orders and operate with considerable force and measurable influence. When the Bible talks about legions or when it talks about hosts, these are all military terms. Sometimes in scripture, you'll read about a commander of the Lord's army. So if angels are organized into a military-like form, it makes sense to think that the demons are also organized in a military-type form. Mark Moore, who's been here and spoke to us, observes that there are, uh, there are four levels of demonic influence. The first is that of temptation. I want you guys to pay attention to this because maybe you will notice that there have been times in your life where you could go, I wonder if that was demonic in nature. The first is that of temptation. This is where they increase your access to sin. They know a weakness in your life and they uh, expose that and create more opportunities for you to engage in that sin. After that, after temptation, they move to oppression. This can happen as the result of a physical or emotional harm caused by an external attack. Think about someone who's had uh, to recover after a huge accident or a major sickness or somebody dealing with death that they find themselves in a terribly dark place, that that is demonic oppression. Then there is influence, and this is primarily mental and emotional. This is where they push you towards uh, anger. This is where they push you towards depression or they push you towards violence or they push you towards self-harm. Now here's what I'm not saying, that every person you know that is struggling with depression is under demonic influence. What I am saying is there are times that demonic oppression causes depression. There's a big difference. This is why, dear God, I'm asking you guys to be cool. Finally, there is possession. This is where the physical body is controlled in whole or in part, whether it be their hands, their voice, their eyes, and they can possess supernatural physical strength. Have I seen this before? I'm not sure. Do I believe this happens? Yes. Why? Two reasons. There are people that I trust that have been in situations that would go uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt, this is what happened. And the second thing is, is because Jesus encountered it and warned us about it. All of the things that I just referenced are not things that I'm pulling out of our society. These are things that I'm pulling out that we see evidenced in scripture. That that was how Demonic oppression worked. Now, I want to put all of this in context. You've got through like the worst part of the sermon. Now let's get to the good part, okay? Why do we even want to talk about this? Because right now you could be tempted to believe at all of our different locations that this is a war and a battle of equals. And I need you to hear me say this nothing could be further from the truth. Satan is not everywhere, he is not all-powerful, he is not all-knowing, but Jesus is. Satan is not all-powerful, all-knowing, he's not everywhere, but God is. He is not all-powerful, he's not all-knowing, he is not everywhere, but the Holy Spirit is. And listen to me, neither are demons and angels. They are not, they are not God. God is God. So they are a force, but this is not a battle between two D1 schools. This is 
Tom Brady and whatever team you want to put him on versus your peewee football league. This is not close. There will be blood and it won't be Tom Brady's. That's what's happening here. Now, Satan does have tools in his tool belt. He has the tool of deception, intimidation, and accusation. And I want you to understand these three tools because I want you to understand how you deal with the three things that he can bring on you. The first one is deception. He deceives you, and listen carefully, through biblical half-truths. That is exactly what he did with Eve in the garden. It's exactly what he did with Jesus when he tempted him. He will come to you and go, did God really say? And he will twist you up. He will turn you around. He will masquerade as an angel of light. I will talk to people and they will say, man, uh, they were going through an affair and they will look at me dead in the eye and say, and I was like the closest I had ever been to God. Not true. You cannot be experiencing profound closeness with God and have an affair. That was Satan masquerading as an angel of light to give you permission to destroy your family, destroy your marriage, and destroy your reputation and remove you as a chess piece on God's board. You see that happen with people. They'll be in the middle of the deepest sin and they'll have this closeness with God. You can't, those things are not compatible. It's just not how it works. So he will come and he will deceive you. Now, he, uh, we have an easy weapon against this. And the easy weapon is the word of God. You don't think spending time in your Bible, reading your word is valuable? Well, I'll tell you, it's the best way to fight off Satan and his demons. So don't read it if you don't want to. But look what it says in Ephesians chapter six. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? Why do I need to put on the full armor of God? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. There are schemes, we'll keep going in the text. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. How many of you, all of your fights are flesh and blood struggles? I'm gonna tie this in at the very end of my sermon. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is writing to us and saying, there is a battle you need to gear up for, but the battle is not your wife. The battle is not your boss. The battle is not your government. The battle you are fighting is a spiritual battle. Your wife is not the enemy, she's a casualty, which would change how you treat her. There is a spiritual battle taking place. Let's keep going in the text. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. This is the second time he's saying, gear up. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, we'll keep going. Stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in its place, and with your feet fittingness, fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Let's keep going. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So you're gonna be attacked. Take the helmet of salvation 
Put that on. And then look. And the sword of the spirit, this is your only offensive weapon. This is how you fight back. Everything else is defensive. Here's your offensive weapon. So Satan's gonna tell you biblical half-truths. What is your answer to a biblical half-truth? Take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now the word, word there is not the printed text. It's the spoken word of God. It is when you start saying the things of God out loud, that there is power to you understanding the text and repeating the text and memorizing the text so that you can speak the word of God in those moments. When you speak the truth of God's word, you are not outmatched against the evil one. You are overly qualified. It is not a fair fight. When you have the word of God in your heart and at the ready on your tongue, it is not a fair fight. You are going to be the clear and decisive winner. The second thing that Satan tries to do is intimidate you. Some of you are feeling maybe a little scared or frightened right now. You're gonna go home and like turn on all the lights before you put your kids to bed, I get it. But listen to me, that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants you to live in fear. They want to deceive you into believing that they are stronger and more powerful than they are and that you are outnumbered. Do you remember when Jesus comes to a person who is demon possessed and he says, who are you? And the demon replies, we are legion for we are many. They're saying, hey, there's a bunch of us here. Cool, man, stack them. How many can you fit in there? Because look what happens in John, 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So there is a spiritual war happening, which you have heard is coming, and even now already in this world. You, dear children, are from God, and past tense have overcome them. Because the one who is in you, when you come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Satan's goal, yeah, Satan's goal is to get you to walk away from the victory you already have. You are already standing in a place of victory. And he's getting you to write down a loss on your record. You have already overcome because the one who is in you, not you, I don't want you leaving here thinking that you are a demon slayer. You're not, you're nothing. It is he who overcomes. He is the spirit that is greater, not you, not me, him. And when we have him, we have all we need. His final tool is that Satan uses against you is he is an accuser and a slanderer. One is saying false things about you. Anybody like it when someone says false things about you? No. The second one is more hurtful. He says true things about you. Those hurt. Because the true things he says about you are true. And the things he's bringing up are the things that you don't want anybody to know. 
And he is saying these true things and untrue things about you. He slanders you. He accuses you. He does this to you about you. And you agree with him. He does this to your family and creates separation and division. And he does this to God. He accuses us and slanders us before God. However, there's a way to defeat this. And the way you defeat this is through the blood of Jesus. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 12. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We overcome Satan by the blood of Jesus. Because when Jesus is sacrificed on the cross, when we take hold of it, we are covered in the blood of Jesus. And when we are covered in the blood of Jesus, you cannot accuse me because you cannot accuse him. You can't slander me because you can't slander him. Because when God looks at my sin, he doesn't see my sin, he sees his son, he sees my savior. Why does this matter? Why does this sermon matter? I'm gonna give you three or four quick takeaways. One, I need you to realize that we are not just dealing with flesh and blood issues. That there is spiritual forces at play and it should change our level of caring and compassion we have towards people. We need to raise civility in the church and in our world, not lower it. And if so many times we get angry at people instead of recognizing, is this how God wants me to behave or how he wants this situation to play out? Or maybe you go, you know what? I think I'm being tempted to cause division. I'm being tempted to bring shame upon the name of Christ. Um, what if they are not the issue, but they're caught in spiritual turmoil? Jennifer and I, man, Jennifer, I love her to death. We, we do like these checkups on our marriage, okay? And I mean, Jennifer and I, we're both warm-blooded. So I mean, we can, get, uh, we can get after it if we need to, if we're frustrated. And for the longest time, you can, in your marriage, um, you can, you can see them as an enemy. And Satan will come in and he can start tweaking things and creating more and more division. And so one of the things I'll say when Jennifer and I are talking, I'll just ask the question, uh, where's an area where Satan's trying to cause miscommunication? Where's an area where Satan's trying to get a foothold? What that does is, is it doesn't make Jennifer see me as the enemy. And I don't see her as the enemy. I see her as the victim. And she sees me as the victim in an area that Satan's trying to exploit. My marriage has an enemy, but it isn't her. It has an enemy. It's Satan. Oh, he'd love to destroy it. He'd love to take me out of the game. He'd love to take you out of the game. But it changes how you treat somebody when you realize that she's not the enemy, he is. Second thing, it should change our level of commitment. We need to take our faith seriously to recognize that you and I have a part to play. It should solidify our thankfulness to Jesus who is the ultimate overcomer. Our gratitude for him should never cease. Did you notice how much of the battle belongs to him? 
And he did that not because he needed to. He was good. He did it because he loved us. He did it because he wanted to. And the fourth thing, it should clarify our allegiance. We should recognize that Jesus' team wins and we should wanna be on the winning team. I want you guys to think about that as we move to this time of decision. Thank you for joining us. A special thank you to those of you that choose to give to this ministry. It's because of your generosity that this ministry is possible. You can click the link in the description to give now or visit thecrossing.net forward slash podcast for more information. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe and share with your friends, tagging One Crossing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.